Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, we thank you for your Shabbat, for this opportunity you have given us to gather together as Mishpacha, as family to worship before you. Father, I thank you uh, for your word and for our opportunity to interact with and glean from your word each and every day of our life. Father, I thank you that the, uh, in your great wisdom and providence that the Torah cycle was established so that we can have uh, a readily available and constantly flowing interaction with your word each and every week of our lives as we move through the Torah cycle and see the beauty of Mashiach not only in the Torah but throughout the entirety of your word. Father, I thank you that predicating the coming of Messiah by about 500 years the Torah cycle was established, all of which for the purpose of pointing us and directing us specifically to Yeshua, your Messiah, our salvation. Father, we thank you that you have uh, uh, given us this opportunity to open your word and to hear from you. I pray that everything that is spoken today is spoken from your heart and your voice is received that nothing of me is involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen and Amen. So this week we are in Parsha Miketz. Parsha Miketz is uh, a continuation of the narrative of Joseph's life. Uh, and in particular, uh, a continuation of the narrative of the ups and downs of Joseph's life. Um, I wasn't here last week. I was down in Orlando at the MJA Southeast Regional Conference, which, by the way, was awesome. So go ahead and start marking your calendars now uh, for next year. It's that weekend of December 18th, whatever that Friday, Saturday, Sunday is right there. Start preparing and planning now so that you can be there for the conference next year. you got a whole year to set, set aside finances to uh, reserve your room and to, to be able to get uh, things squared away to go. And I encourage you strongly to take part in it. Uh, but in particular, one of the things I love about Joseph, and usually I talk a little bit about this, and I wasn't here last week to talk about Joseph, so I'm going to kind of combine this concept a little bit uh, as we move through. But one of the things I love about Joseph is as we look through the scriptures, we see countless uh, individuals, countless characters, countless people in the Bible that are foreshadowings of Messiah. Right? We see David as a foreshadowing Messiah. Moses is a foreshadowing Messiah. Uh, we see that uh, Abraham is a foreshadowing Messiah. We see Melchizedek is a foreshadowing Messiah, etc., etc. What's really interesting, though, is out of all of these foreshadowings of Yeshua that we see throughout the Tanakh, each and every one of them are either a foreshadowing of the first coming, which is the suffering servant, or they're a foreshadowing of the second coming, which is the victorious king. But rarely ever do we see an individual that is a foreshadowing of both. And Joseph is that individual. In Joseph's life, we see the foreshadowing of the suffering servant and the victorious king. And we can see the, the clear delineations in his life, the markers in his life in which these things 
occurred, and we see this image there. And in particular, throughout Joseph's life, we see really interesting correlations that point us directly to Yeshua as we see these things that compare and contrast all the way across their lives. So, for example, we see that both uh, were loved by their father, both called their brothers out on errors, both knew that they were destined for greatness, both saw the hatred in their brother's eyes, both were mocked and ridiculed by their brothers, both were sold off by Yehuda, by Judah, right? We see that Joseph was sold literally by his brother Judah into slavery, and Yeshua was sold off or, or, or handed off to the Romans by the Jewish people, by the, the, the people that lived in the land, uh, uh, what was remaining of the land of Judah at that point in time. So we see that both were sold off by Yehuda, by Judah. Both were punished at the behest of lies. Both were quiet even to the slaughter quote-unquote. Now, obviously, Joseph didn't die, but that image there, his brothers, his father, everybody thought he was. Both were awaiting their full glory to be revealed. Remember last week, we read about Joseph and his visions, his dreams, and his uh, complete and total incapability of, of kind of throttling his zeal and excitement and knowing his audience and when he should and shouldn't talk as he shares these dreams with his brothers and his father. Um, both longed for nothing but to help others. Both rose to the occasion. Both were cast away by their own brothers. Both were handed over to Gentiles. Both provided salvation for Israel and the nations. And each one's suffering leads to an eventual rulership over the whole world. As we look at Joseph's life and we see this correlation between him, him as this foreshadowing of Mashiach bin Yosef or the suffering servant and Mashiach bin David, the victorious king, it's really neat to see the way that God plays this out in his life. But in particular, what we're going to focus on today in this idea of him uh, as this foreshadowing of Mashiach or this foreshadowing of Yeshua and what it means for us in our lives as believers, I want to ask you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41 beginning with verse 37. Genesis chapter 41, verse 37. If you don't have your Bibles with you today, I'm not really sure what you thought we were doing, but pull out your cell phone. You probably got one on there to work out. Now the plan seemed good in the eyes of Pharaoh as well as all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can a man like this be found, one in whom is the Ruach Elohim, is God's Spirit? If you backtrack a little bit, and we're not going to read through it all right now, but if you backtrack a little bit, what we see is that, uh, as we read in our, our Torah service, that Pharaoh has these dreams that, that, that completely baffle him. As a matter of fact, Jewish tradition says that he had these dreams for two complete years, over and over and over and over and over again, and he kept trying to find somebody that could interpret the dream for him until finally we get to what we read about in this week's parsha, in which he finally just called everybody and screamed out, I've gotta, we've got to figure this out. We've got to get this settled. We've got to understand what these dreams are. And this is when finally the, the, uh, the butler that was in prison with Joseph recognizes, oh, I totally messed up. Hold on, Pharaoh, let me help you out here real quick. There's this dude in prison. His name's Joseph. And um, yeah, when we were in there, you remember that time that you hated me and, and you wanted me to, yeah, you threw me in prison. Yeah, I was with him. He was a pretty cool dude. And he told us that me and this other guy had these dreams and he told us that one was going to die and one was going to be restored. And I was the one that drew the lucky straw and got restored and that's really awesome and so yeah this dude can probably he can probably tell you what your dreams mean you should go get him and so instantly pharaoh sends for him he comes back remember all of the wise men all of the 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 magicians all of these people of egypt could not 
uh, find out and figure out what these dreams mean, which kind of points us to what we see in just a few uh, weeks as we move into the book of Exodus and how uh, Moses and Aaron come in and they've got all these signs and wonders in the first couple with the, the magic that the magicians used. They were able to kind of mimic them, but it got to a point where even they couldn't do it. And we recognize the power of God moving there above and beyond. And so we see kind of this same thing, this correlation between the two narratives. But I uh, hear Joseph reveals what the dreams mean. And he says it's going to be seven years of, uh, of great harvest and seven years of famine. And you need to stockpile everything during the seven years so that when the second seven comes, you're able to uh, you know, basically not die and feed other people and take care of your kingdom and, and survive. And so Pharaoh gets excited, one, that all of a sudden this dream has been revealed to him. And two, that there's a plan that's already been put into play with this dream and he goes you know what that's an awesome plan you know what you're you're a pretty good dude so let's go ahead and put you in charge you're going to take care of this right so here's joseph who was just in prison the day before that's drug out of prison he's given just enough time to shave take a shower change his clothes before he comes in and the next thing he knows he's sitting in pharaoh's seat in essence later on we find out that pharaoh says that joseph is second to him in nothing except the throne but even being second to the throne Pharaoh can't do anything without Joseph giving him the go-ahead. Think about that. Joseph sat, in essence, in the seat of Pharaoh. He was in charge of everything except the title of Pharaoh itself. And so Pharaoh says that he saw that this was good, uh, and he says, can a man like this be found, one in whom God's, is God's spirit, or the Ruach Elohim? Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You will be over my house and all my people, and, will, uh, and all my people will pay homage to you. Only in relation to the throne will I be greater than you. And then he goes through the whole thing and gives them a change of name and gives them a, uh, uh, a wife from what... There's great debate among the theologian historians whether or not this was Potiphar's daughter as in the dude that put him in prison or if there was another person who had a similar name. But nonetheless, as we look at this, it's really neat to see how the Lord begins to restore to Joseph everything that he ultimately could have lost as he spent all this time enslaved and in prison. Verse 46, now Joseph was 30 years old. Let that sink in. How old was Yeshua when he went into ministry? 30 years old. Joseph was 30 years old when he began serving as representative Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and passed through the whole land of Egypt. So here we have this guy, Pharaoh, who's an Egyptian, who knows nothing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows nothing of the Hebrew people except that the Hebrew people are shepherds. They, they handle sheep and goats and they stay with the herds and, and they've kind of got this nomadic type of personality. And to the Egyptians, as we find out later on, this was deemed disgusting and despicable. As a matter of fact, it's through this that Joseph is able to bring salvation to his brothers when he says, hey, when you bring Pops back here, I want you to come in and I want you to go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's going to ask you who you are and you're going to tell him you're my family. Tell him specifically that you are a shepherd because he doesn't like shepherds and will send you up to the best land there is. And it's in Goshen, the best land it is, that ultimately we are set up for God's protection. Even in the midst of slavery, we're set up for God's protection in, uh, in time for, in, in preparation of when God brings salvation to the Jewish people, drawing us out of slavery in Egypt. 
and bringing us toward his promises and the promised land. So as we see this, there's these kind of providential setups that God has in place that he's putting uh, in play uh, at this point in time. And what's really neat, as Pharaoh, as I said, is a, he's a pagan. He has, knows nothing of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's got no relationship with him whatsoever. He's got no correlation, no connection, no nothing. But yet he recognizes that in this guy who's so different than the Egyptians that the Spirit of God resides within him. And notice the languages here. Yes, Elohim is a very loose term, right? The word El, singular in Hebrew, simply means God, right? Elohim means God's. But in particular, throughout the Torah, throughout the Tanakh, when we see the word Elohim, it is generally speaking of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the Hebrew here, it's not Yodevavhe that we see, but it's physically Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. And it's the, the, the language is very intentional. This isn't Pharaoh saying he's got the spirit of our gods. He's saying he has the spirit, the one and only spirit of the God of all creation. And we recognize that later when Joseph encounters his brothers, he hasn't quite revealed himself to them. He says, don't worry, I fear, fear your God. They don't see the connection. They don't see the correlation. They don't understand who he is yet. But he says, I fear your God and I will protect you and take care of you. And so as we see here, Pharaoh recognizes this man who is uh, completely devoid of biblical training and understanding. He's completely devoid of lineage and heritage of Abraham. He's completely devoid of anything that connects him to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Recognizes in this man, Joseph, who just revealed this dream to him that there's something different about him than all of his own magicians and all of his own soothsayers and all of his own fortune tellers and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. That there's, there's, there's this extra little something there and he recognizes that it is the spirit of God that is upon him and he says there's no man greater in my kingdom that can handle this than this man because he has the spirit of God upon him and I think about that and I think about the world that we live in today and I think about how things are playing out around us and I find it really interesting that when we look at Egypt especially as we move towards Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel enslaved in Egypt and the narrative that we read there in the book of Exodus, what we realize is that Egypt was a pretty depraved place in general. Egypt was a pagan society. They worshipped countless gods. They believed that Pharaoh himself was the uh, earthly reincarnation of their supreme god. They believed that there was a god of the Nile that provided all of their needs and took care of everything. And if the Nile had a drought, that all of a sudden this god was angry and they had to make sacrifices and whatever in order to make this god happy again so that they could be able to be provided for. And all of this, yet here is this man that is absolutely contrary to everything that is a relationship with the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that looks at this individual named Joseph, who he has no connection to other than this single encounter and goes, I can see that the Spirit of God is in you. And it made me think about our lives and the world that we live in today. And, and I often wonder when people look at us as believers, as part of the body of Messiah, and I don't mean just within Messianic Judaism, I'm talking the greater body of Messiah as a whole. When the world around us, recognizing, as we should, that the majority of the world around us does not believe like you and I do. The majority of the world around us does not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The majority of the world around us does not believe in the salvation brought only by the blood of Yeshua, does not believe in the power of the Ruach HaKodesh. But when the world around us, which we can correlate to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, see us as followers of Messiah, do they sense that there's something different? Do they see the power of the Spirit of God in our lives? 
When we look at Joseph, we can see over and over and over again as the wisdom of God is portrayed through him, is poured out through him, as he makes all of these, these decisions, these uh, plans that end up bringing salvation not only to the Egyptian people and to all the surrounding nations around them, but even to his own brothers. And let's be honest, if any one of us was in his situation, short of the Spirit of God within us, would any of us been as gracious to our brothers as he was? short of the presence and the power of God himself within us, would any of us have treated our brothers as he did? And notice the test that he puts them through. Notice it was Reuben that stood up for him right out the gate, and it was Reuben that said, let's not sell him, right? Let's not kill him. Let's not do anything with him. Let's protect him. And it was Reuben that stood up for him first or stood up for, for uh, his brothers first and said, no, no, we'll take care of this. Judah is finally the one that brings the restoration, but Judah is the one that sold him into slavery in the first place. It's Judah that finally stands up and protects Benjamin and says, all right, Pops, look, if something happens to him, you can take my life, my kid's life, whatever you need to. I will take care of Benjamin. I will protect him. And what's interesting is every time Joseph saw his brothers, his heart broke instantly because they didn't recognize him. They just saw some other uh, Egyptian dude. There was no connection at all to this being the brother, the long-lost brother Joseph that they thought was dead. He was just some other Egyptian guy who happened to sit on a really powerful throne in Egypt and was taking care of and providing them food. They had no other connection to him whatsoever than that. He recognized him instantly. It goes on to tell us several times between this week and next week's Parsha that when his brothers came in that there was an interpreter between them and Joseph. Joseph knew what they were saying, but they didn't realize it because there was an interpreter. He carried on this, this kind of act with them for both times of both visits that they came about. In both visits, he has to run out the room for a minute to collect himself when he recognizes his brothers and when he sees how their hearts have changed. As we look at the reality of the power of God in our midst, we see with Joseph, it's not specifically that God gave him the Spirit uh, so that he could interpret dreams, but rather the Spirit of God was in him so that he could be a representation of God here on earth. And even more so that through him there could be restoration brought to his brothers and his family. There would be a salvation brought to his family. You and I in the same sense as believers of Messiah are empowered with the Ruach HaKodesh or empowered with the Holy Spirit, with the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God for the same purpose. We're not here to try and give people answers to all their problems. We're here to bring them to the one that can we're here to bring restoration to our brothers and sisters. We're here to bring restoration to our friends and our family. We're here to bring restoration to those that we work with and we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. We are empowered with the Spirit of God so that those around us will be drawn to us and want what we have and find the reality Messiah in their own lives because of that interaction. We go to Acts chapter 2. Verse 37, we're not starting at the beginning of Acts 2. Acts 2, we see the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh. We see everything that's going on there. But then we go on to Acts chapter 2. This is long after there was the whole, you know, uh, they're, they're drunk in the spirit and so on and so forth. It was long after that Peter has laid out this sermon before them and told them, hey, this is what God promised he would do forever. And now it has happened. Verse 37, now when they heard this, this is, they heard Peter's words. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the emissaries, fellow brethren, what shall we do? 
Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be immersed in the name of Messiah Yeshua for the removal of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as Adonai our God calls to himself. With many other words, he warned them and kept urging them, saying, Save yourselves from this twisted generation. So those who received his message were immersed, and that day about 3,000 souls were added. First off, their hearts were, were uh, softened to the message Peter was bringing because they saw the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, not just physically saw the outpouring of the Spirit uh, upon the believers in Acts 2 at the temple, but they saw what the Spirit of God was doing through them. They witnessed it firsthand. They experienced it. They encountered it. And 3,000 people came to faith, not because Peter preached a good message, but because they saw the power of God in their midst which is what we have been longing for and looking for our entire existence. And it says 3,000 people came to faith instantly because they saw the Ruach Elohim. They saw the Spirit of God upon the disciples. We go forward to chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 29. This is after Peter uh, has healed the man in the temple with the withered hand and everybody is upset because he just brought healing to this guy um, and, and everything going on there. As a matter of fact, they'd already been told a couple of times, look, stop this Yeshua stuff. Stop causing your stirring up problems. Stop all of this. And he said, I can't do it. This is who I am now. This is what I'm going to do. So verse 29, Peter and the emissaries replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whom you seized and had crucified, the one God exalted at his right hand uh, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and removal of sin. And we are witnesses of these events, as is the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, from uh, whom, uh, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, when they heard this, they became enraged and they wanted to kill them. This is speaking of the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so on. They heard them speaking, uh, Peter speaking these words. They became enraged. They wanted to kill him. Verse 34, but a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, anybody recognize that name? Gamaliel was the teacher of who would later be known as Paul. Rab Shaul, this was the, the Pharisee. This was the great, he's called Gamaliel the Elder in the Talmud today. He is one of the greatest minds of first century Judaism. He's one of the most highly respected minds of first century Judaism. And he was the teacher of Paul. Paul was his disciple. So here in chapter 5, he says, But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the Torah, respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Then he said to the men of Israel, be careful what you are about to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutius arose, uh, rose up and claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, maybe 400, joined up with him. He was killed, and all who followed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this fellow, Judah, uh, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So now I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone, for if this plan or undertaking is of men, it will come to no end. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop them. You might even be, fi might even be found fighting against God, and they took his advice. Here is the man who is the, the teacher of Paul. Paul is his disciple that is standing up. And notice this is two chapters before we even see an introduction to Paul. He stands up before the Sanhedrin and he says, guys, guys, <laughs> slow your roll here. Listen to me. Here's what's going on. These guys could very well be nothing. You don't know. 
But if you remember historically, all these other guys keep standing up and proclaim themselves to be something special and they get all these dudes to follow them and then they die and all the people that follow them fade away and, and kind of become nothing and they go in to do other stuff. So, so let's just see what happens here. Let's let it run its course because if it's, if it's not of God, the same thing will happen again. It will just fade away. But if it is of God and you fight against it, you may very well find yourself fighting against the Lord. I believe that this is a very important reality that we see, particularly who is saying this because of what follows two chapters later. Two chapters after this is when Stephen is being uh, about to be stoned and they give him one last chance to, to, to testify on his own behalf and he preaches the word bold with chutzpah because the Spirit of God is in him and he's not afraid, he's not ashamed, and he's not holding back. He's literally staring down the proverbial barrel that is aimed at him, ready for the death that is about to come. And he takes one last chance to preach the gospel no matter what. And at the end, when they stone him, everybody that stoned him comes over and they look at this guy named Paul for his approval. Remember, Paul is the very same person that's a disciple of Gamaliel. I believe that in this time period between Acts 5 and Acts 7, that Paul likely heard some about what was going on and that Paul didn't quite get the same message from Gamaliel as the Sanhedrin did and he got angry and went and rushed against it out of what he thought was a zeal for the Lord, but it was really misplaced. But when he heard Stephen's testimony and witnessed the reality of what happened, I think the reason why we have this random discussion of Paul being who stood over and gave approval for Stephen's death is because of the fact that two chapters after that, is when we see Paul come to faith. I believe that this testimony of Stephen as he operated in the power of the Spirit, unashamed and unafraid, was what God used to soften the heart of a man that was literally killing believers every single day. And two chapters later, he's an encounter with the power of God. He doesn't just have an encounter with somebody preaching the Word, but he literally encounters Messiah and the power of God before him. And he comes to faith in Yeshua. And he becomes one of the most powerful voices for the body of Messiah that we have heard of even to this day. But it wasn't because there was anything special about him any more than there was of Joseph. But it was because of the power of the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God that was in him. And the same for Peter. And the same for Stephen. And the same for Yeshua. The same for David and Solomon. And all of these great men of faith that we see, although they made mistakes along the way, Ultimately, the message of Messiah was either built through them or presented through them because of the fact that the Spirit of God was on them. And the world saw them and recognized there was something different. The world saw them and said, nobody can do what you do because the Ruach Elohim is upon you. And I wonder for us today, as we walk in our everyday lives, as we're walking up and down the grocery store aisle, as we're going to and from work, as we're sitting at the red light, angry because the person in front of us didn't speed off fast enough when the light turned green. Is that just me? Or do we all do that? Okay, just making sure. Just making sure. I wonder how often people see us and what they see first and foremost is the Ruach Elohim. A lot of times we're really good at the head knowledge side of what this thing we call faith and Messiah is. We're really good at spouting off Scripture. We're really good at trying to tell people how they can fix their problems. We're really good about telling people about the quote-unquote Roman road and how they can come to some, and repeat after me the sinner's prayer and blah, 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 blah. But do they really, truly see the power of God in our lives? Do they see the Ruach Elohim before they hear 
his word come forth. It's important that we stand in the power of God, that we recognize that we are nothing without the power of God in our lives, to recognize that we on our own are never going to lead anyone to a real, true, authentic faith in Messiah if we're not doing it through the power of the Ruach HaKadosh. It's really important that we understand that it doesn't matter how well we can keep Shabbat, how much effort we put into making sure we're not eating the wrong things. It doesn't matter how far we, we're willing to drive or not drive on Shabbat. It doesn't matter how great we think we are because we keep the Torah when the rest of the body may not. It doesn't matter any of that. It doesn't matter at all if the Spirit of God is not actually what people see. Because the reality is we can practice all day long. And if you think about it, that's really what faith is. When we're walking out the walk of faith, it's a practice. But that practice means nothing if the power of God is not in us. If His Ruach HaKodesh is not moving on us. Peter's message in Acts 2 would have done nothing if it weren't for the fact that the power of God was flowing through him. It wasn't the words that he spoke because our people have heard those words for generations upon generations. He quoted from the prophets over and over and over again. Stephen quoted from the prophets. He quoted from the Torah over and over and over again. It wasn't the words themselves that won them over. It was the power and presence of the God of all creation in their lives that gave life to the word that they were speaking that drew them in and that led 3,000 at one time to come to know the salvation of Yeshua Mashiach. I don't know about you, but that's a really eye-opening, boldly awakening reality. Are we truly, faithfully, day in and day out, seeding our lives to the Ruach's will? Are we allowing the Ruach to move through us or are we simply thinking we're doing the right stuff? When people hear us talk, do they hear the word of God coming from the heart of God? Or do they hear the word of God coming from our mouths? We talk about it every week in our Torah service that we believe that we serve a God who is alive and well and who speaks to us as much today as he ever has in the, Christian, the, the history of creation. That one of the primary ways he speaks to us is through his word. Why? Because it was his ruach, his spirit, that inspired those words to be written in the first place. And that same spirit resides within us. And if we allow the ruach HaKodesh to reside within us, if we're truly bought by the blood of the lamb and the word made flesh is in our heart, then the external can only follow what the internal is being led to do by the spirit of God. And when that's the case, and we walk down that proverbial mountain, the world around us will see the radiant glory of God upon us. And they will want what we have. Because the truth is, what we have is what the world has been yearning for, is hungry and thirsty for, and has been longing for since the fall of man. And it is our duty to walk in the power of the Ruach HaKodesh as our forefathers did, as Joseph did, as Moses did, as Aaron did, as David did, as Solomon did, as Elijah and Elisha did, as Yeshua did, as the disciples did, to walk in the power and the presence of the Ruach HaKodesh, of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that people see us and they see God first. 
or we begin to talk or we begin to pray or we begin to minister, whatever it may be that they're feeling the presence of God touching them, ministering to them, moving upon them. It's really important for us to awaken our hearts and our lives day in and day out to the reality that it is necessary for the power and presence of God to be very real, very tangible in our lives day in and day out. And we have countless opportunities in the Word of God to see examples of what that looks like. Joseph being one of those who was enslaved, was sold by his brothers, was enslaved, was imprisoned, was forgotten about by, for two years by the guy that was supposed to be his lifeline, and then finally is brought out. And he doesn't come out and go straight to the, the butler and go, dude, seriously? Like two years, man. We, this could have, seriously? Instead he goes to Pharaoh and he speaks the word of the Lord. And Pharaoh sees the power and presence in him. Could you imagine spending two years in prison and still being so focused on the power and the presence of God that when you come out, that's the first thing somebody recognizes? If you can't imagine it, it's probably time for us to fall on our faces before Him. Because every day when we wake up and walk out of our house, that should be the first thing people see. And I promise you, sleeping in my bed every night is way more comfortable than sleeping in prison every night. And yet Joseph walked right out of prison and the power and the glory of God was flowing through him as though he never missed a beat. And the same should be true for us every time we climb out of bed, every time we leave our house, every time we see another person, that they see the power of God before they hear a word come forth from our face. That they look at us and say, the Ruach Elohim is upon you. I need and I want what you have. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father and our King, we worship you, we glorify you. We thank you, Lord, that you are present and faithful in our lives, that your word rings true faithfully day in and day out. We thank you, Lord, that no matter how far we stray from you, that your yearning and desire is always for us to come back, that, that, that day in and day out you want nothing more to, than to use us for your glory and your kingdom. Father, I thank you that you have given us your uh, Kodesh, your Holy Spirit, to impact the world around us. And Lord, I ask you to take the, the free reign in our lives that we may be in alignment with your Ruach, in alignment with your Spirit, with your will every single day. Father, take control of our lives that as we go forward in the world around us, that we will go forward and impact the world because your Shekhinah, your divine glory, your presence, your power, your Ruach is in us. Father, I pray over each and every person hearing these words today that your Ruach will fall upon them and refresh and renew them, restore them even now as we speak, Lord. May the winds of your Spirit come upon this place and upon each and every person hearing these words today that your might and your power will be known, that your salvation will be found, that restoration and deliverance in Messiah Yeshua will be found today that each of us will be free from the enemy's grip and reign in our lives, that we can move forward for the good and the glory of your kingdom, that your holy name may be known by all through the work of your salvation and your spirit in our lives. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen.